Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Riots and violence, unrest sweeps through Israeli cities as Jewish and Arab citizens clash. Diplomatic dialogue, President Biden calls for calm. And Bitcoin backtrack, Elon Musk abandons plans to accept crypto for cars. It's Thursday, let's make a move. And we begin once again with breaking news from the Middle East. A new front opening up in the escalating conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Mob violence between Arabs and Jews erupting in some of the country's mixed cities overnight. Deadly exchanges of rocket fire and airstrikes carrying on into Thursday. The violence has now killed 83 Palestinians and injured almost 500, and at least seven Israelis have died and over 200 wounded. Haddis Gold joins us now live from Tel Aviv. Haddis, just explain exactly where you are and what you're seeing for us, please. Well, Julia, I'm in northern Tel Aviv, and throughout the day, uh, Tel Aviv has actually experienced its own air raid sirens. We were actually about to report a few hours ago, and right before we went live, we heard those air raid sirens and had to run into this parking garage where I'm standing. This is actually the location of where a rocket fell overnight. You can see the impact here, just how big of an impact this rocket had. Uh, the, uh, the sound booms, the impacts, the shrapnel breaking windows at the buildings around us and balconies, and you can see through the garage here uh, hitting cars, destroying several cars all around us. It just goes to show you how dangerous these rockets are. It's one of what the Israeli military says are 1,600 rockets, they say, have been fired from Gaza into Israel. The Israeli military responding with airstrikes targeting more than 600 targets, they say. Uh, They say that they have uh, uh, killed several, more than a dozen senior Hamas operatives. Uh, And as you noted in your introduction there, that the death toll is mounting on both sides. It's a really intense situation here. It's an escalating situation. Doesn't seem to be calming down anytime soon. The residents here as far north of Tel Aviv are not used to receiving these rocket barrages. They're not used to hearing these air raid sirens, and they've been spending the last few days running back and forth to their bomb shelters. And we should keep in mind that the residents in Gaza often don't have the bomb shelters to run into when uh, the Israeli military strikes. Now, the Israeli military says that they are specifically striking militant locations, that they take any reports of civilian casualties very seriously. But what I want to note, Julia, is that we're seem to be at a new level here because rockets hitting northern Tel Aviv and the leveling of buildings in Gaza that we've seen Israel doing, Israel saying that it's a, it, the, the, he, they leveled a building that they say hosted important Hamas offices. That happened at the end, towards the end of the last conflict that we saw, major conflict we saw in 2014. We seem to still be sort of in the beginning stages of this conflict, and that seems to be where we're starting from. Well, the world is watching and fearful that this escalates further, um, Hadass. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, said what we're seeing in terms of the violence in the cities too, and I alluded to this at the beginning as well, is is anarchy and it's unacceptable whoever the target is. Just talk through some of the clashes that we've seen in some Israeli cities over the last day or so as well. This is a 
Yes, this is a really worrying new development here because it seems as though the tension has spread from East Jerusalem, uh, of course, down to the, the actions we're seeing uh, with Gaza, but then also to these mixed communities within Israel where Arabs and Jewish residents uh, live uh, amongst one another. And we have seen some really horrifying videos and hearing horrifying reports of violence, of mob violence, both Jewish on Arab, Arab on, on Jewish. And it is really frightening for a lot of people here that, that it's really to these level of tensions that they have not seen in many of these places for several years. These are uh, communities like Lod, like Batyam, like Akko. These are communities that for some time had lived peacefully, uh, Jewish with Arab, Arab with Jewish, and now they are seeing this mob violence, which is really unsettling for a lot of people here, in addition, of course, to, uh, to the rocket attacks that we're seeing. And as you noted, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu putting out a statement saying that he doesn't care if anybody's blood is boiling, that uh, you, do, you cannot take action into your own hands and saying that it's not acceptable. Whoever is doing it, that uh, this violence is not acceptable. Harris, thank you for joining us uh, this morning and stay safe, please. Harris Gold there. Right on Friday, the UN Security Council will meet to discuss the hostilities. Meanwhile, US leaders have reached out to both the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to urge them to de-escalate the violence. My expectation and hope is that uh, uh, this will be uh, closing down sooner than later. But uh, Israel has a right to defend itself when you have thousands of rockets flying into your territory. But uh, I had a, a conversation for a while with, with the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, and uh, I think that uh, my hope is that we'll see uh, this coming to conclusion sooner than later. John Harwood joins us now from Washington. John, much was made here that it took President Biden four weeks upon entering the White House to actually make that phone call to the Israeli prime minister, even if that phone call was discussed as warm at the time. What impact do you think the United States can have in mediating between the two sides here? Limited, but the administration is trying to put pressure on, mostly privately, uh, the uh, Joe Biden has not taken a high profile role in this. Those remarks yesterday were the only ones that he's made publicly about it. But I do think it's significant that he said he uh, anticipates that it will end sooner rather than later, which reflects, I think, the uh, results of those phone calls, more than 25 phone calls from White House national security officials to counterparts in the region. Um, and you've also got the United States uh, leaning on uh, uh, diplomats in Egypt and Qatar, uh, that they hope will uh, uh, put some pressure on Hamas to try to uh, ease tensions here and prevent this from spinning out of uh, control. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not one that Joe Biden has wanted to put at the top of his foreign policy agenda. And uh, the uh, potential that this could spin out of control is a very worrisome development for the White House. What more can be done? As you said, it's a behind-the-scenes negotiation and there's clearly a flurry of global diplomacy going on here. It's not just about the United States. I mean, I think it's it's uh, diplomatic pressure. Um, uh, I, I don't think you're going to see a, a more directly uh, a direct intervention by the administration, but it's trying to call on all parties to uh, prevent this from uh, uh, getting much worse than it already is. We've seen these reports from Hadass the last few days. It is alarming, especially those clashes on the street. Um, but the uh, more you have uh, uh, diplomats. Um, not just in the United States, but in the region, around the world, all uh, 
converging their attention on this problem, urging the parties to back off, that at least creates the hope, the potential uh, that they will do so. Yeah, anything to avoid a return to or a repeat of 2014. John Harwood, thank you so much for that in Washington, D.C. for us. Okay, we will continue to bring you abreast of further developments over there throughout programming on CNN today. For now, let's bring it back to the first move for global markets. And it's a volatile one. Inflation inflation gestation equals investor agitation. I think that's the message. Big picture. U.S. futures bouncing from earlier losses with the Nasdaq set to claw back some of Wednesday's sharp 2.6% decline. Europe as you can still see, still firmly lower. And Asian markets finished deep in the red there too. The Nikkei, the real underperformer, ending down 2.5% and on the cusp now of that 10% correction territory. The global driver here, stronger than expected inflation data in the United States, but also in China this week too. And what that means for the withdrawal of support from global central banks I can tell you there's more trouble today. U.S. producer price index measures the manufacturing price pressures, and that rose by some 0.6% last month, double, in fact, the expected amount. PPI is up a strong 6.2% year over year, too, as you can see on the screen in front of you. This matters because higher prices for businesses can ultimately lead to increased costs for consumers as businesses pass those higher prices on. The big debate, of course, is whether all this is transitory or merely reflecting the challenges of economic reopenings or whether inflation is truly taking hold for the first time in decades. It's a question for bond market investors, too. U.S. 10-year yields steady today but still near a six-week high, 1.69%, as you can see, reflecting stickier price stress. Yields on German bunds as well at two-year highs. One bright spot, however, a massive auction of U.S. 10-year government bonds went off yesterday without a hitch. U.S. debt still in demand at current yields and a sign that the transitory inflation story holds, at least for bond market investors, for now. Now, from inflation infatuation, to crypto chaos. Bitcoin, Ether, Dogecoin all plunging overnight and the techno king of Tesla is to blame. Yes, the Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, announcing that the company is suspending taking payments in Bitcoin. Musk says this is due to Bitcoin's impact on the environment. Christine Romans joins me now. Uh, Words never fail me and they fail me. Uh, What do we think of this? You know, look, this is a real U-turn, as uh, as you say, for for him. He has been saying that, um, you know, the wave of the future will be crypto and that it's good for the future. And now he's saying, well, it's good for the future. Um, it will get legitimacy among, you know, conventional financial people. But I am focused on uh, the cryptocurrencies that have less of an environmental impact as Bitcoin. He says cryptocurrency is a good idea on many levels, uh, but this cannot be done to a detriment um, to the economy or the environment. Surprise, surprise, we knew, right? We all have known that mining for crypto, for Bitcoin is incredibly energy intensive. And the idea of using uh, cryptocurrency as a down payment or to buy an energy efficient car, there's a contradiction there that many people have pointed out many times. We don't know. The company's not saying whether he's just now learning of these environmental concerns or what, in fact, is prompting this change from February when they said they were going to be investing uh, one in have billion dollars in their balance sheet in crypto and um, also that they would be taking these down payments. I would or taking payments for their cars in crypto. You know, it, and it, he's been very public and very kind of off the cuff about crypto. You know, let's listen to let's listen to him on Saturday Night Live just on May 8th when, you know, he kind of had a little dig at Dogecoin and then Doge, Dogecoin tanked after that. Listen. 
It's the future of currency. It's an unstoppable financial vehicle that's going to take over the world. I get that, but uh, what is it, man? (laughs) I keep telling you, it's a cryptocurrency you can trade for conventional money. Oh, so it's a hustle. Yeah, it's a hustle. (laughs) Why did you say that, man? I've got my head in my hands. I mean, Dogecoin also tanked overnight, let's be clear. I, I mean, this was seen as a, a marking point, I think, for cryptocurrencies that a huge company like Tesla was accepting Bitcoin yes. for payments for their cars. I mean, this is it was a huge market point. We saw Bitcoin rally 16 percent, I think, the day that it, it was announced. And now it's, it's come back again. I mean, we can debate all sorts of angles here and we will do later on in the show. But, but Christine, for me, regulation regulation, regulation, nothing about what we're seeing here, whether him as a CEO of Tesla, of the crypto environment, too. And many of the big players are saying, look, we need some degree of regulation actually to enshrine this as an asset that is something that can enter the mainstream. And there are there are critics of Elon Musk who have said he is a walking SEC violation, right? I mean, he tweets and talks about things. Right. I mean, there's plenty of documented evidence evidence for this. He's trying to be a, you know, sort of a celebrity CEO figure legitimizing crypto. uh, And now what about all those small investors who follow him with such diehard enthusiasm? They're the ones left, you know, holding the bag when the when the when they when they tank. Yeah. And there's an inconsistency here for me, too, in that uh, either it's an environmental concern or it isn't. Either you can buy and sell cars with it and you can have it on your balance sheet or you can't. You shouldn't be able to do both. In my mind, you're saying there's a transaction issue here with Bitcoin, perhaps, rather than a store of value issue. And we should discuss that later on in the show. Yeah, it is a contradiction, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's many contradictions in here. (laughs) Too many to unravel. (laughs) Thank you. And as I mentioned later in the show, we're going to hear from Anthony Pompilano of Pomp Investments. So fasten your seatbelts for that. OK, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Officials in Delhi say COVID cases are starting to decline in the Indian Territory. But nationwide, the infection rate and death toll are still high. In the east, dozens of bodies have washed up in the Ganges River, prompting officials to install a net. They still haven't determined the causes of death, but the victims are thought to have died from COVID. Nepal is urging climbers on Mount Everest to hand over empty oxygen cylinders so that they can be used for COVID patients. It comes as hospitals are dealing with a severe shortage of oxygen supply amid a second coronavirus outbreak. Just this Tuesday, Nepal reported its highest number of new deaths from COVID. Okay, so to come here on First Move, the Colonial Pipeline is back online after that cyber attack. We'll speak to the head of the American Petroleum Institute about protecting America's energy infrastructure and Alibaba sees an operating loss as China's crackdown eats into its revenue surge. Stay with us, that's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move, the Colonial Pipeline restarting operations days after a massive ransomware attack. But the company says it will take several days for deliveries to return to normal. Now a growing number of gasoline stations along the U.S. East Coast are running out of fuel as many drivers fill up their tanks in panic buying, as Diane Gallagher reports. 
gas. As far as gas, yeah, we ain't got no more. And patience. I don't know how this is going to work for all of us. Running out all along the East Coast. I've went to like six different stations and nobody's got any gas. Demand spiked by 40% on Monday in five states from Florida to Virginia. I was on my way to my dad's house and my gas tank is basically empty and all the gas pumps has out of service. Officials blaming public panic for what seems like a sudden short supply. The shortages that we're seeing are pretty much solely related to panic buying from from people. And I want to encourage people uh, not to do that. Uh, Don't fill up your car unless you have to. The nervous fill-up sparked by last week's Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. There should be no cause for hoarding gasoline, uh, especially in light of the fact that the pipeline should be substantially operational by the end of this week. The 5,500-mile pipeline moves roughly 45% of the East Coast fuel supply. GasBuddy reporting more than 1,800 stations are offline, saying here in North Carolina, an eye-popping 65% are running dry. With long lines stretching for miles, if drivers are lucky enough to find fuel, it's costing them. Six gallons of gas for $35, that's absolutely ridiculous. The average price of a gallon of gas jumping to $3. More expensive than we've seen in quite some time. Actually, the last time we were at that price point was the end of October in 2014. Experts warn that panic purchases could create a domino effect. You don't want to miss out. You don't want to be the one that doesn't get gas. Meaning fear of a shortage could actually create one. The U.S. oil and gas industry is represented by the American Petroleum Institute. The group's 600 members produce, process and distribute most of the nation's energy. And joining us now is Mike Summers, CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. Mike, great to have you on the show. We were just showing up. Julia, great to be back with you. Great to have you with us. The level of chaos, actually, that we're seeing at, at pumps all over the country. Mike, what's the industry's response to what we've seen? Well, first of all, it was great news yesterday that Colonial announced that they're getting the pipeline back online. So we're uh, pleased with that uh, result, of course. But I do think some of this panic buying has really led to this supply shortage. So you really were dealing with both a supply issue because of the pipeline going down because of really a a terrorist attack on uh, this uh, pipeline. And then in addition to that, you've had, uh, of course, the issue of people uh, panicking as a consequence. People shouldn't be hoarding gasoline at this time. What they really should be focused on is uh, uh, making sure that they they have the fuel, of course, they need. But we're going to get this gas online uh, very quickly. What should CEOs in the industry, particularly pipeline CEOs, be focused on at this moment, Mike? We've got the the threat of cybersecurity risk. We've got the challenges when that does happen and what we've seen in terms of the constraints that that place is on providing energy supply to parts of the country. What do CEOs need to be doing today? Well, I think all of our CEOs, particularly those that are members of the American Petroleum Institute, are keenly focused on making sure that our cyber defenses are up and running. Uh, All of our member CEOs are focused on making sure that they have their cyber defenses in place. And we want to work with the federal government on making sure that there aren't vulnerabilities to our energy supply. What I'd say is is that this is an economy-wide issue. This isn't just something that exists within the oil and gas industry. Every American company has suffered these kinds of cyber attacks. And we need to make sure that we have a robust system in place that can fight back against these rogue actors uh, overseas. 
So uh, we're focused on that. We want to work with the federal government on building those re robust defenses and also doing things to make sure that those uh, people in other countries that are targeting energy infrastructure and other infrastructure are, are held accountable for what they're doing. Mike, I spoke to the, um, the head of the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Neil Chatterjee, yesterday, and he had this to say about the response from the private sector. Every CEO in the energy sector, and especially pipeline CEOs, should immediately, immediately convene their incident management teams to do a deep dive review of their security posture and protocols. I had a pipeline uh, CEO a couple years ago tell me that he had been briefed by ODNI that his system was vulnerable, but no one in his company had a security clearance high enough to even get briefed to know where to make investments to protect their system. That worries me, Mike. Not having appropriate security clearance in order to be able to make the required investments, even understanding what the required investments are. We're all learning about new technologies and what the vulnerabilities are, and that's only accelerated in the last year and a half. Where do you even begin, Mike? And would you agree that actually we're nowhere near protected for this kind of threat? wherever well, we're trust talking me. in terms of infrastructure. Yeah, I, I mean, trust me, every energy CEO, and I think every CEO in the country right now is looking at their systems to make sure they're not vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. Uh, I think I think every company goes through a very significant cyber reviews every year. And I think this this attack, of course, was a wake up call, not just for the energy infrastructure, but for every company CEO uh, who has uh, some vulnerabilities in this space. But we need to work with government to make sure that we are protected, both from a defensive measure uh, to make sure that we have the proper controls in place at every uh, every company in the United States, but also uh, we need to make sure the government's holding these overseas actors and these countries that sponsor them accountable for what their countries are doing. So uh, we're focused on this. Uh, you know, the other big issue here, though, is, Julia, is is the fact that we need to continue to build out this infrastructure, our energy infrastructure in particular, because the world's going to continue to demand and Americans are going to continue to demand uh, a lot of energy. Uh, and we can't continue to be dependent uh, on the existing pipeline infrastructure. We need to build more. Yeah, I mean, there will be those listening to this saying you build more pipes and you're going to have to provide even greater security in order to protect them, quite frankly, though I get your point about the need for, for greater but provision we and, and diversification. We shouldn't, be doing, you know, we shouldn't be talking about shutting down existing pipelines for sure. So, for example, there's a, a pipeline in the state of uh, Michigan that they're talking about shutting down right now, uh, the Enbridge Pipeline Line 5. Uh, there's a pipeline uh, from the Dakotas, the Dakota Access Pipeline, that there's mm. discussions of shutting down right now. Uh, that is not the way to deal with these issues. We need, of course, to take care of cybersecurity, but we also need to protect it, it, existing infrastructure from uh, attacks from, uh, from regulators and government officials who want to shut these pipelines down. So there are multiple issues in this space, and we want to work with the federal government and state governments to make sure that we have the energy infrastructure online to protect the American people. And I completely understand that, Mike. There will also be people, again, listening to this and saying, you know, private companies buy these utilities because they think they're a stable cash flow, but they also have to invest in them in order to protect them from this kind of threat. Is enough of that being done? Because when you say work with the government, there's a, there's a meet in the middle here, whether they need to provide greater support, understanding, information, but also investment from the private sector side too. Yeah, I mean, the oil and gas industry is ready to invest 
in, in this kind of infrastructure. They invest okay. every year to update uh, these pipelines uh, to make sure that they're safe and they provide fuel that the American people need during uh, these kinds of situations. Uh, but we, we also need permitting reform so that we can continue to build out that infrastructure. We're prepared to build out that infrastructure more. We want to build more pipelines in this country, and we want to invest in, in cybersecurity as well. Sometimes that requires the federal government to give us uh, some permitting reform so that we continue, can continue to build it out. But we also need government support to uh, keep us appraised of some of the cyber actors overseas right. and their new techniques that they're bringing on to online. Yeah, and there has to be deterrence too. Mike, you raised some great points. Great to have you on as always. Mike Summers, Julia, great CEO. to be with you. As always, the CEO of American Petroleum Institute. Great to have you with us. Okay, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and Volunteers of America ringing the bell this morning. And U.S. markets are up and running and ready for trade this Thursday. And we're seeing nice Thursday bounces for the rate-sensitive tech stocks after a more than 2.5% thwacking in yesterday's session. But the inflationary pressures that are triggering global market volatility not going away anytime soon. Just released data showing the U.S. producer price index rose some 0.6% last month. As we've mentioned, that's double what was expected and the fastest rise in wholesale prices in over a decade. Meanwhile, U.S. jobless claims remain a relative bright spot, rising, yes, but by a weaker than expected 473,000 people last week. That is another pre-pandemic low. All this as McDonald's announces that it's raising wages by some 10% at many restaurants as it tries to attract new workers. Remember, labor shortages as well as part shortages have helped drive up recent inflationary pressures and certainly fears too. Earnings from reopening plays Disney and Airbnb are on deck later today too. Cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase will also release its first results since going public also. So that's the markets. Let's bring it back to our top story once again today. And a deadly confrontation between Israel and militants in Gaza shows no signs of letting up. The United Nations is warning the conflict could grow into a full-scale war as rockets continue to be launched from Gaza and the Israeli military responds with airstrikes. Meanwhile, there's growing concern over violent unrest in a number of towns in Israel with a majority Arab population. Ben Weedman is live in the Israeli city of Lod with the latest. Ben, just talk about some of the violence that you've seen. Well, what we've seen here is that uh, there has been uh, several nights of violence here in this mixed uh, Palestinian-Israeli and Jewish-Israeli town. On many of the streets you drive through, you will find burned cars like this. And, of course, the uh, Israeli government has imposed an 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. curfew here. Now, what we saw last night was some fairly disturbing uh, images, video that was shot and posted on social media of what appears to be Jewish-Israeli mobs attacking individual Palestinian Israelis. Uh, and this happened not just here in the town of Lid, where actually night before last one Palestinian was Palestinian Israeli was shot dead, uh, but in the towns of Akko or Akko in uh, Hebrew and uh, other towns as well. But here we've got the Israeli border police have been deployed here. On the right is a, a school uh, that has been partially burned, and some of the houses here 
have been uh, vandalized as well. Now, I spoke to one Jewish-Israeli resident here who told me that uh, night before last, when all of this was going on, there was rock flow, rock throwing, fighting in the streets, uh, that she fled her home with her husband and uh, went to Jerusalem to stay with her mother. She came back here just to see the state of her house, uh, but uh, she's going to go back to Jerusalem this evening. Also, the Palestinian-Israeli residents you talk to tell of the violence that has occurred here, what they suffered at the hands of Jewish Israelis. They also complain about the fact that traditionally Palestinian Israelis are not afforded the sort of municipal services in terms of education and whatnot uh, that their uh, Jewish Israeli co-citizens are provided. But certainly this is something, a further complication for the Israeli government that of course is dealing with the situation with Gaza, the situation in Jerusalem. But in terms of unrest, uh, this is the worst that this part of Israel has seen since 1966. Julia? Ben, you were saying to us yesterday that we can't forget the importance of domestic politics in Israel at this moment. And we were talking earlier on in the show about the flurry of diplomatic activity going on, primarily behind the scenes here. What's your sense uh, and what is the sense of the people that you're speaking to there? Do, do they believe that the likelihood is that this is going to be more of a protracted standoff? All indications are that uh, the Israelis have made it clear that they are, are not going to sort of stop halfway in terms of this operation, uh, in terms of the military exchange going on, that uh, they have certain objectives that they want to achieve and they're not going to stop midway uh, as a result of diplomatic efforts. In fact, El Arabiya, the Arabic news channel, uh, is reporting from Cairo uh, that the Egyptians offered to basically act as an intermediary between Israel and Hamas in Gaza and the Israelis, according to Al-Arabiya, turned them down. Julia? Ben Weidman, stay safe, please. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Flights to and from Israel are being curtailed because of the ongoing unrest. United, American, Delta, Lufthansa and British Airways have all cancelled or announced cancellations or waivers on flights in and out of Tel Aviv. All right, coming up from one of the biggest cheerleaders to a villain. Should say that with a question mark as Elon Musk's Bitcoin comments and ripple effects across the crypto market. We'll speak to a prominent investor who disagrees with Musk. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and returning now to our top business story. Elon Musk's backtrack on taking payments for Tesla's cars in Bitcoin. He says he's become concerned about how Bitcoin mining and transactions affect the environment. The tweet has sent Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies tumbling. My next guest says this energy narrative is inaccurate. And crucially, Musk is not selling Bitcoin. Crypto investor Anthony Pomp Pompliano joins us now. Anthony, great to have you on the show. Something tells me you didn't get much sleep last night. No, I slept pretty well, except for you guys got me waking up early to come on the show. But uh, thanks so much for having me. OK, let me read the quote. He said, we are concerned about rapidly increasing, for emphasis, use of fossil fuels in Bitcoin mining and transactions, especially coal, which has the worst emissions of any fuel. Misinformed or just plain wrong? 
Well, listen, you know, Elon Musk is probably one of the greatest innovators uh, ever. And uh, he's built two amazing companies in Tesla and SpaceX. Uh, but I think that the exact comments or, or phrases that were used are inaccurate. And so one of them is increasing, right? Actually, what we see is that there's been a big move away or a shift away from coal powered uh, energy uh, to power the uh, Bitcoin network. Instead, what we're seeing actually is the adoption of renewable power. About 75% of all miners use some form of renewable power. About 40 to 50% of miners use 100% renewable power. And actually what we're seeing is a shift from China now to the United States and Canada, which is a much greener grid. And so I think generally, not only are we seeing um, kind of really great progress in terms of what we already have uh, from a renewable standpoint, but also we're seeing that shift, uh, which is only gonna lead to more and more renewable power because it is the cheapest power uh, available and miners need cheap power in order to be profitable. Check the source for that as well. I was looking for it. Cambridge University did a big study and, uh, and I've read it. I guess some of the criticism that will instantly come is 65%, I believe, around of Bitcoin is mined in China. And whether they're using renewable or not, it's tough to verify. Do you accept that that is a challenge here in terms of verification of the data? But also, even if we're just talking about digital assets in general, there are cleaner energy versions, Ether, for example, XRP, not mined. Is that a fact that we can stick to at this moment? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things here, right, is to remember that uh, money is energy. It's stored energy. And so you need uh, some conversion of energy to have money be valuable. Uh, we're seeing in the legacy world uh, when you have no energy, when you have nothing, when you can just print money out of thin air, what happens? And it's not good. It's not good for uh, people all around the world. And so I think that this narrative in terms of uh, energy consumption uh, is very misguided, uh, frankly, for two different reasons. One is uh, the U.S. Bank banking system is way worse for the environment than Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency is. Uh, and also it consumes much, much more power. And a lot of times what you'll hear is uh, people will say something like uh, Bitcoin consumes more power than a small country. But also <laughs> the Americans use of Christmas lights every year consumes more energy than some of these small countries. And so I think that those comparisons just aren't really that great. And when it comes to the comparison between cryptocurrencies, um, you know, again, the market has spoken. My opinion doesn't matter. Nobody else's opinion has mattered. Uh, the market has spoken. Bitcoin is the most valuable uh, cryptocurrency. I think it will remain the most valuable cryptocurrency. It's a trillion dollar asset from zero to a trillion dollars in about 12 years. And I think that we're going to see it go much, much higher in the coming months and years. I love your point about let's compare apples with apples, quite frankly, not apples with oranges. Don't care about relative energy consumption versus countries care about other forms like the financial sector. And that's good. But you didn't answer my question. There is cleaner digital assets than, than Bitcoin. We're clear on that. And I think that's important for people to understand whether you love Bitcoin or not, or you like other digital assets or not. Let's talk Tesla specifically, because there's an inconsistency here for me, Anthony. Maybe you can like, explain it. He's saying you can't buy cars anymore, or at least for now, with Bitcoin. But he's still holding loads of Bitcoin, both on balance sheets of his companies, we believe still, but also he's holding it personally. Either you're against the environmental costs of digital assets or you're not. What he kind of is suggesting to me is that he's questioning the, the transaction, the utility value of Bitcoin, not the store of wealth opportunity of Bitcoin. Agree? 
yes, look, Elon Musk, again, not only is he one of the greatest innovators, he's also one of the greatest marketers. And I think that what uh, we're watching here uh, is the first step in a master stroke of genius and where Tesla, uh, which is a renewable energy company, it's a battery company, uh, is going to lay the groundwork to start a narrative. Uh, and then they are going to come and save the day. They're going to have this kind of heroic action of they're going to launch a product that allows people uh, to use those power walls that they have uh, to basically mine Bitcoin with renewable power. Uh, and so if you start to see uh, kind of this uh, almost footing or this foundation for a product launch. Um, I think that's why you're getting this narrative around uh, renewable power. Yet, again, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they're doing. They're not selling any of their Bitcoin because of this. In fact, and when the price dropped, they may have bought more. We don't know, right? Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy announced this morning they bought another $15 million. Uh, we'll see when Tesla announces again. But I think that we've got to separate out uh, kind of what they're saying from what they're actually doing and then also look to the future and ask why are they saying this stuff? And I think it's because they're actually going to launch a product at some point in the future uh, that will address some of these, uh, th these components. But you disagree with the point that I'm making that actually – there is a store of wealth argument that he's making here. Perhaps he's going to try and help with the energy efficiency questions around digital assets. But the point he's sort of making here is that, and you made it with the financial sector point as well, I think, that there are more efficient ways of improving the financial plumbing or improving efficiency in digital currencies if you want to do that, not using Bitcoin, whether you believe it's a great store of value or not. And many people do, like yourself. Yeah, look, Bitcoin is the apex predator of financial markets. There was over $18 billion of on-chain transaction volume in the last 24 hours. That's not exchange traded volume. That's not speculation around trading. That's simply people sending it from person to person on chain. $18 billion, that's $6.5 trillion annualized, which is about 50% of all of Visa's annual transaction volume. The Bitcoin network processes more transaction volume in a year than Apple Pay, PayPal, or Venmo. This thing is an absolute monster. Not only is it serving as the best store of value globally, but it is also serving as this great medium of exchange. And that $18 billion in a 24-hour period is done without asking permission of any government, any central bank, or any financial institution. And that's why I personally believe Bitcoin is inevitable to continue to rise until it becomes the next global reserve currency. So, Anthony, why did he do this, really? Why did he stop people buying cars? If it is such a great medium of exchange, why? Why has he done this, do you think? Do you believe it's because of his beliefs regarding the environment? I frankly don't, I, I frankly don't think anyone was buying cars with Bitcoin to begin with, right? Why, why would somebody use Bitcoin to buy a car uh, <laughs> when they can use dollars, which is being depreciated? So I think that's one you know, big kind of elephant in the room. Uh, but the second thing, I, I really do believe that this entire uh, kind of conversation and, and the statement yesterday uh, is really laying the groundwork so that uh, Tesla will be able to come out and they will be able to launch some sort of renewable power mining equipment. Um, and if you think about it, they have the power wall. Uh, and so if you have this battery at home that's storing power, how much power are you really going to consume for your car or for your home? If all of a sudden you now can monetize that power by helping to run software to mine uh, on the Bitcoin network and you can actually monetize that power, you should be able to pay off the power wall pretty uh, quickly. And then also it can serve as an income stream for the folks who buy that power wall. So I think that there's you know a much bigger play here. It's not really um, kind of what they're talking about in terms of transactions. You should um, you should be hired. There's some great ideas in there. 
Um, Anthony, quickly, as an investor, are you concerned that one person can have this much impact in terms of price? You made the point that he could be buying. He just came out and tanked the market, probably knowing full well what would happen when he made this announcement, by the way, then buying it up. I mean, if you were a regulator watching this, your, your hair would be turning grey and your steam would be coming out of your ears. Is that a problem here very quickly? If that's what he was doing, then that's exactly what Wall Street does every day. They put out research that is uh, negative. The price goes down and they buy it. So I think that this is true in every financial market if that's actually what's happening here. But I know that I bought last night and a lot of my friends did. And I don't think that anyone's going to stop buying because of anything that Elon Musk said. Yeah, I know a lot of people who are buying too. (laughs) Anthony Pompilano, great to have you on as always. Thank you. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. The organizers of this summer's Olympics in Tokyo are resisting pressure to call off the massive sporting event. With literally weeks to go, the concerns are mounting about holding the Games during the pandemic. As Selena Wang reports. We're just about 10 weeks away from the Tokyo Olympics and a growing course of high-profile voices in Japan are raising alarm about the Games, including sponsors, athletes, politicians and the medical community. Most recently, Toyota, a top Olympic sponsor, said that the company is concerned about the public frustration against hosting the Games in the middle of rising COVID-19 cases in Japan and a strained medical system. This comes after two of Japan's star athletes, tennis players Naomi Osaka and Kei Nishikori, said they're conflicted about whether the Olympics should be held this summer. As we get closer and closer to the Games, the setbacks continue to mount. At least 35 towns in Japan said they are canceling deals to host international athletes, citing COVID-19 concerns. The U.S. track and field team has canceled its pre-Olympic training camp in Japan. The torch relay has been canceled or moved off of public streets in parts of the country. Several test events have been canceled or postponed. On top of all of this, Japan has only fully vaccinated about 1% of its population. Yet amid all of this, the International Olympic Committee continues to reiterate that they are determined to host the Olympic Games as planned. In the most recent virtual press briefing, however, the press briefing was cut short by a protester that cut into the conference. Take a listen here. Ah. No Olympics anywhere. No Olympics anywhere. The Olympics. We don't want the Olympics anywhere. You just turn him off. That'll no be someone obviously is not. No. no Olympics in Tokyo. Thank you. Uh, and and on that that great note, I'm sorry to disappoint you that uh, it was me, not the president, uh, today. Um, obviously, would have um, probably made that stunt a little bit more interesting. Uh, I'm used to it, so that's fine. And here in Japan, the local polls show that the majority of the Japanese population think that the games should be cancelled this summer. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. Now from Olympic sports to Olympian-style revenues at Alibaba, sales at the Chinese internet giant soaring 64% year over year. The company, however, reporting an overall net loss as it reels from a huge Chinese antitrust fine. As Paul and Monica joins us now, Paul, these were incredible revenues, and we've seen this from similar-style businesses, the Amazons of the world, for example, as we all shifted to online spending, but that fine was pivotal. Yeah, the fine obviously leading Alibaba to report a net loss. If you exclude that, the numbers weren't nearly as problematic with um, you know profit growth of you know almost twenty percent. I think the issue though 
is that, as you point out, Alibaba is benefiting from a surge in demand for online shopping, especially in China, as that country recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic as well. 925 million monthly active users for Alibaba's core commerce platform. It is a staggering number and big growth from December as well. But there are some questions. And I've got a huge question about the cloud business some data distress going on there. What happened, do we think? Yeah, cloud revenue grew 37% from a year ago, which is obviously impressive. But what could be somewhat troublesome, and Alibaba hasn't given that much detail, they said that one of their top customers outside of the U.S. has decided to stop using Alibaba Cloud internationally. And we don't know what the reason is exactly, who that customer is, but As we all know, Julia, Alibaba faces a lot of competition, both in China from companies like Tencent, as well as from global American behemoths like Amazon, Microsoft, and Google Owner Alphabet, which have massive cloud computing businesses. So it's a very competitive landscape right now. If Alibaba is starting to lose some traction, that's that's bad news for the company. Yeah, hugely competitive landscape, but also the greater scrutiny from officials in Beijing as well is also going to give investors perhaps pause for thought. And that's a challenge going forward. It's not a one-off. Paula Monica, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. And finally, the gas shortages in parts of the states have made this warning necessary, apparently, with Americans being reminded here by the Product Safety Commission not to fill plastic bags with gasoline. Images have surfaced on social media of some people using uh, unconventional means to carry petrol. Better than using a handbag. All right, that's it for the show. I'm joking. If you missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. And in the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.